there's many, many, many statistics that suggest that upwards of 75% of, of kids are really, really interested in, in changing their bodies to fit into the un, really unrealistic appearance ideals. And that, you know, within that percentage, it varies um, tremendously around the lengths that one child might go. But even as young as four, you know, kids are starting to make these kind of black and white determinations about what's um, valuable in terms of the size and shape of bodies. Welcome to Tilled Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. Before I even introduce today's episode, I want to share what feels like a huge milestone. Today marks the 200th episode of this podcast. Next month, it will be four years since I started this show with a vision of bringing honest, useful, and most importantly, real conversations to parents everywhere who were struggling or feeling isolated or overwhelmed in navigating their life as parent to a differently wired child. And since that time, four years ago, this podcast has continued to just grow month after month. I have been so fortunate to be able to tap dream guests like Ross Green and Steve Silberman and Dan Siegel and Julie Lithcott-Hames and Carol Kranowitz and so many more. It's just been so exciting to be able to reach out to these thought leaders and these experts and share their insights and their wisdom for parents like us. So today, I'm going to just ask for your help. I would love for you to share this podcast with people that you think would benefit. It could be friends and family. It could be people in a Facebook group that you're in. It could be people in an in real life group that you guys are having conversations about important topics for parents. And then this goes without saying, I remind you guys every week at the end of the show, but please subscribe and review and rate. The thing about doing a show for parents of differently wired kids is that a lot of this audience, they discover us by either those like 2am searches on Google when people are kind of at wit's end and in crisis mode, or through word of mouth. Our community is such that a lot of us just aren't open about what's going on in our families. And so I really do rely on you guys to help me spread the word because what I know, what I hear from you guys and what I hear from listeners everywhere is that when they find our show, they kind of instantly have this sense of belonging. Like, thank you. I found my tribe. I found the conversations that really resonate with exactly what I'm going through. So I need your help to make sure that other parents can find us more easily. So Again, I just want to thank you for being a part of this show. I really do consider this to be a conversation that's taking place between all of us. You know, when I'm speaking to a guest, I definitely try to channel what I think your questions and concerns are as I talk to my guests. And then I love getting feedback from you about what this show has done for your family or what really clicked for you. So please keep that conversation going. Thank you so much for being on the other end of this. And let's keep the show going for another 200 plus episodes. I am totally in for it if you are. Okay, now I'm going to pivot here and start talking about today's show. So this week, I'm diving into the topic of body image issues and disordered eating. This is something I've been looking to cover for some time now. And you know, it's an important topic for all parents, but there are special considerations for parents raising differently wired kids. So for this discussion, I have brought on Zoe Bisbing and Leslie Block. They're both psychotherapists based in New York City, specializing in the early detection and family-based treatment of childhood and adolescent eating disorders. And they're also the creators of the Full Bloom Project, a research-informed body-positive parenting resource with the mission to teach parents how to transform their home environment into a place where kids can naturally boost immunity to our appearance-obsessed culture. So we cover a lot of ground in our conversation. We talk about what body-positive parenting means, the particular challenges for parents of atypical kids when it comes to body and eating issues how the latest research can inform us to help our children develop positive relationships with their bodies and food and much more. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. 
Hey, Zoe and Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, we're so excited to be here talking with you today. Well, this is a new topic for the show. So I am just looking forward to it. I always love when I have the chance to talk about something completely different. And this is a conversation that is important for parents of any child, but it's always great to bring these topics to my audience as well. And we'll find ways to make it specific for parents of differently wired kids. But what I would love as a way to get started is if each of you could introduce yourselves, spend a little time talking about who you are separately, and then I'd love to hear a little bit about your work together. Sure. Uh, this is Zoe Bisbing here. I can start. Uh, I'm a psychotherapist based in New York City. I'm a mom as well of soon to be three. And in my private practice, I do, like Leslie, have a specialty in child and adolescent eating disorders and also work with adults with eating disorders and also work in my private practice with folks struggling with other kinds of things like anxiety and depression, relationship issues. Um, but when I'm not in my private practice, I'm often with Leslie uh, working on the Full Bloom Project, which is, I know we'll talk more about today, a body positive parenting resource. And we co-host the, the Full Bloom Podcast, which is a body positive parenting podcast. So this work, and I'll, I'll kind of volley to Leslie, and she can tell a little bit more about herself and our journey together. But the work we do in, in full bloom is really about prevention and working with parents of all kinds of kids of all genders, um, trying to help them never ne- necessarily need us in our private practices. Mm-hmm. Um, we sort of joke that we're trying to put ourselves out of business. But uh, I'm a native New Yorker and a fan of your podcast, this podcast. So very happy to be here. And I'll pass it to you, Leslie. Yeah, I'm Leslie Block. And I too am a psychotherapist with a practice in Brooklyn Heights in Brooklyn. Um, And I spend a lot of my time working with individuals, um, kids, adolescents, families, and adults who are challenge with their relationship with food and their body and different levels of severity. And I am also a mother of two living in Manhattan, um, two girls. And Zoe and I met in graduate school. We both really were interested in specializing in eating disorders. And we spent a lot of time consulting, doing peer supervision with each other as we built our private practices. Um, We pretty much built them at the same time. We sat for our licensing exam, both very, very pregnant, um, mine with my second, hers with her first. And so we kind of launched our private practices, launched our parenting journey all (laughs) at the same time. And I think when we both kind of came up from air from that, if there's ever that moment, there seemed to be a little bit of space for both of us to think about, I guess, our next baby, um, (laughs) which... (laughs) which was really kind of a a pivot for us um, in thinking really about what does the research say um, is helpful for parents to know about how to raise their children, um, all different types of children, to have the best chance we can um, given our culture to support them to have a a relationship with food in their body um, so that they're not preoccupied and they can go bloom in the ways that their mind wants to go. And we just, we found that this was a really interesting topic and we wanted to keep talking to researchers about it. And we decided, you know, the Full Bloom Project was really born. And um, it's been amazing to talk with parents of all all different types of kids and adult kids, and just help them through what is kind of a, a pretty complicated feeling around like, how do we do this? Yeah, if you're, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, there was just such a focus on eating disorders specifically in girls, you know, bulimia and anorexia. And then we started to discover this isn't something that just impacts girls, that 
boys can have these same challenges. And then we started hearing about body dysmorphia. And, you know, I feel like our understanding is getting more and more, but it's still confusing, I think, in this landscape to know how to best support what you guys call body positive parenting and, and, and having a positive relationship with your body. So can you talk about what that even is? When you, you use this term body positive parenting, what are, what are you trying to support parents in creating and what is kind of the ultimate goal? Yeah. So this is Zoe again, and we've, we've outlined body positive parenting as a parenting philosophy that proposes research informed methods which aim to most effectively use the family environment and the community environment to promote self-esteem and positive body image in kids. So body positive parenting, as we've coined it, it integrates scholarly research from a variety of different disciplines, including eating disorder prevention, but not that alone. It includes pediatric nutrition, child and adolescent mental health, like the kind of field of psychology, and something called health at every size, which we might not get to kind of really dig into today, but that is very much one of the tenants that folds into it. And one little caveat I'll say off the bat, we do use this term body positive parenting, but through our our journey, we've gotten to speak to so many different researchers and we're so committed to having our resource be very inclusive, not just of all types of, you know, wired children, but also all all genders. And so one of the things that I'll throw out there for those listening we do use the term body positive parenting, but sometimes, especially with like gender non-binary kids or trans kids, this sort of point isn't about getting positive about your body, but maybe more of like a body neutrality or some people use this term body liberation. So those are nuances that if people are interested in, they can check out our resources and we really try to delve into that. But we do say body positive parenting because our goal is for every body to be able to have reverence and and a sense of dignity and respect for their own body, its function, its form, all of it, um, which you know it's hard to it's hard to do. But there are sort of very you know the, the goals are sort of going to be different depending on what type of person we're talking about. So I just wanted to put that out there as a frame for our discussion. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I, I would love to even just take a step back. And I'm wondering if you could paint a landscape for us of what is the status quo right now? Or I'm sure you got you guys are in the research and, and you're well aware of what the state is for today's youth and, and children in terms of eating disorders or having negative body image. So what is the landscape like right now? I wish I could be more positive about this, but I guess that's why we're really working on this project is because in general, our culture is one in which we use the term diet culture. Um, We really all live, our kids and us and everyone in this culture in which appearance ideals are really equated with health and virtue and a person's value is tied to their body size kind of in terms of the messaging that our kids are growing up in and are getting bombarded with and even more bombarded with because of social media. So our kids are um, kind of jumping in, trying to learn to swim in this ocean of of our culture, which is challenging um, to really uh, accept their body as it is. And uh, I I think we can all relate to that feeling. And so we have a lot of work to do here as, as a culture and also as individuals. And children are, are challenged. There's many, many, many statistics that suggest that upwards of 75% of, of kids are really, really interested in, in changing their bodies to fit into the un, really unrealistic appearance ideals. And that, you know, within that percentage varies um, tremendously around the lengths that one child might go. But even as young as four, you know, kids are starting to make these 
kind of black and white determinations about what's um, valuable in terms of the size and shape of bodies. Hmm. So you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I mean, I think we can also just reflect on images we see. I know for myself, I was walking down the street today and kind of this little boutique on the Upper West Side that's sort of geared towards tweens. And I was noticing just the shapes of the mannequins in the in the front of the store. And th- they were all the same size and they look, you know, like tall versions of thin children. And I think to sort of answer your question, and it is, it's, it's not particularly positive answer, but there is this big disconnect between what the ideals are and what is reality for most people's just genetics, most people's biology. And I was recently reading a statistic that like in puberty, for example, it's something like 40 to 70 pounds of weight gain is sort of to be expected in terms of the growth needs of a child. And, you know, puberty, for example, is this time where if we're really just looking at what's natural, the body should be chunking up, for example. And I think about puberty when I walk by this tween store, like those are the, that's the age for puberty. And these mannequins look a very specific way that I think we can all, everyone listening can kind of imagine what like a little preteen body mannequin might look like. And so this is sort of an illustration of the dilemma that whether it's for children, tweens, teens, adults, the ideals are so out of reach for most people. And there's so much value, like Leslie was describing, ascribed to these ideals that it leaves many people, most people, and particularly young people who are just also trying to figure out who they are in the world, quite lost and confused about like, am I okay as I am? Um, We certainly want them to feel that they're okay as they are. But the culture is a really important piece of this because we're not always seeing the representation that we really need to see in order to support this idea that however you are, however you look is right. And that it's not about change, but this is a very, very hard concept to interrupt, but, but we're working on it. Are there groups within, you know, kids and teens who are more vulnerable? And so, of course, I'm wondering if you see any correlation or what you've experienced in terms of differently wired kids and having negative body image or a negative relationship with their body, but any other vulnerable groups? Well, there's certainly um, a vulnerability that's passed down if there's eating disorders in the family. Um, So we know now that eating disorders are highly heritable and are passed on through a genetic link. And so if a child was born from parents who have eating disorders in their family, there's naturally going to be a a predisposition for risk. So I want to, there's one there. Um, two is any individual who's naturally in a body that's considered larger on the larger side is absolutely more at risk because our world contains a huge amount of weight discrimination and weight stigma and fat phobia that this individual is likely to experience and that the general cultural response to that is, well, well, there must be something wrong. This person must not be doing enough um, to manage their weight, which is actually very, very false. But we need to help those kids not succumb to, oh, the solution is try to lose weight because we know that's not effective and more we really want to help those children in other ways um, and help change the culture. So that those would be the two primary kind of populations that are at risk. Zoe, do you want to add anything? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple others I, I think are relevant. One, I mean, unfortunately that stereotype of eating disorders affecting girls is not, you know, it's not untrue that they, that there are, 
very unrealistic appearance ideals that girls are facing. It's they're facing boys. They're facing kids that don't conform to, you know, the gender binary as well. Um, And it's been interesting to uh, speak to some of the researchers that are looking more specifically at the gender non-binary trans community of kids, because there's a limit on research. There's not very much research around that, but kids that are experiencing gender dysphoria, they are also very much at risk. Um, And then the other thing, and it's sort of an interesting dichotomy because Leslie's right that kids that are in larger bodies that, you know, they are particularly vulnerable, but something else that is a risk perhaps relevant to some of your population. um, One of the risk factors for developing anorexia, which is a specific type of eating disorder is energy imbalance and low weight. So oftentimes for a variety of reasons, um, and this may not be about appearance ideals, but this is more just the sort of biological response. And if a body goes into an energy imbalance, meaning getting fewer caloric input than output, and weight loss is sort of a a consequence of that, sometimes, particularly if you think about that genetic risk factor that Leslie was was talking about, that can unfortunately become a little bit of a perfect storm to dive into the anorexic mindset and that and, and like full-blown anorexia so so that's a, a sort of more nuanced risk factor because it's not necessarily about appearance ideals it could be um, that could happen when a kid goes on a diet because they're trying to you know they're striving for an appearance ideal that's out of reach and then energy imbalance happens and then the sort of cascade towards anorexia can happen but this can also happen when energy imbalance is affected by things that have nothing to do with appearance goals, you know? So I I would add those as, as additional vulnerable pockets. Yeah. And just to kind of introduce this, there is a, a clinical eating disorder called avoidant and restrictive food intake disorder. It's sometimes um, referred to as ARFID and that is really kind of an extreme picky eating. Um, And so the, there is an element of, you know, that really trying to help families and parents with, with the feeling of picky eating is where we want to try to help intervene and, and help them through that process because picky eating can sometimes turn into, because of what, what Zoe was just speaking about, an energy imbalance, which in turn can, can become a, a clinical eating disorder called ARFID. Yeah, I've read an article about a link between autism and eating disorders that talked about ARFID because a lot of people on the spectrum do avoid or have really strong sensory experiences that might impact their diet so that they're particularly at risk for that. Yes, yes, absolutely. I would say that that is a particular risk and sometimes differently wired children, you know, that, that it's more of, it may be more of a sensory um, relationship that can be a risk factor and that we work on treating um, and helping the, the child and the parents manage that relationship. And tell me a little bit more about what you've seen with ADHD. That's something else that I've read that there's one study I, I was looking at from 2007 that found that girls with ADHD were almost four times more likely to have an eating disorder than those without ADHD. And I'm wondering what you've seen in your practice and what you can say, if anything, about the link between those things. I mean, I can speak anecdotally just in terms of what I've seen with when there are sort of co-occurring issues. And I, I think that it's what I've seen has been related to what we're talking about, that um, there are almost these competing challenges, or in some cases, the the stimulant, which is which can be. I, I mean, as I, I know you know it can function as an appetite suppressant, can disconnect the child from these sort of very important cues, hunger cues, fullness cues, that are really like one of the most fundamental aspects of what we talk about with body positive parenting, and yet there's usually a good reason for why 
those medications are are being administered and but it becomes a bit of a you know you're treating one one problem but it's sort of a little whack-a-mole because then you're sort of exacerbating another problem and if then weight loss or again this energy imbalance ensues the challenge really becomes and, and sometimes it it means a really conversing with the psychiatrist and if there's a nutritionist involved or if it's the therapist and this is sort of out of the scope of what full bloom is about because we're talking more about prevention but when those issues come up it, it's really about figuring out well okay this medication is being used to treat these symptoms but the food is also an important medication both to prevent and to treat this sort of eating behavior issue that's happening and so it it's it's never a, like a one one size fits all answer but oftentimes i know i've had conversations in terms of timing of medication and figuring out foods that are um have a high caloric index you know that can keep keep the fuel going even though maybe they're not taking up as much space in the child's stomach you know and and but this is definitely a complication that comes with co-occurring issues mm-hmm. i also think that you know one of the the resources that the full bloom has really illuminated for me is the work of Ellen Satter, who um, is just a wonderful resource for all different types of children and all different types of emerging challenges. But also she really, really has offered a wonderful approach to feeding and eating for all children. Um, And one of her kind of tenants um, is really helping kids in the structure of eating and that as, as parents, that's our responsibility to determine the when and the what of our kids' eating structure. And so with children with ADHD, that's extra important to help hold that structure for them. Um, it's how, it's important for all kids and their relationship to becoming very competent, intuitive eaters. But for these particular kids, it's extra important to really help them stay on schedule in a regular eating fashion. If you listen to this show, you probably know that at least one in five children is differently wired. But did you know that approximately one in two women will experience hair thinning? If you're part of that 50%, you are absolutely not alone. But because hair thinning for women isn't something people openly talk about, going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. So why not do something about it with Nutrafol? Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement with over 1 million people seeing thicker, stronger, faster growing hair with less shedding. Everyone's root causes of hair thinning are different, so a one-size-fits-all approach to hair growth isn't going to cut it. Nutrafol has multiple formulas tailored to give your hair what it needs to grow throughout different stages, postpartum, menopause, even for different lifestyles like a plant-based diet. To get your personalized hair health plan based on your specific root causes, you can take a simple hair wellness quiz on Nutrafol.com. And because there's no prescription required, you can quickly get set up online with free shipping and automated deliveries, which make it so much easier to stick with your new hair care routine. See results in three to six months. Take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month's subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code TILT. Find out why over 4,500 healthcare professionals and hairstylists recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com promo code TILT. That's Nutrafol.com promo code TILT. I'm on the road this month and oh man, am I missing my sweet kitties Haskell and Lua. They've been a part of our family for more than two years and I'm so grateful they're keeping Darren such good company while I'm away. If you're getting a new pet soon, you're probably already thinking about everything you'll need to buy. Food, toys, a cozy bed, doggy bags or litter boxes. Something you may not be thinking about, though, is pet insurance. That's why you should check out ASPCA Pet Health Insurance. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. 
They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com parenting. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The ASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. Well, let's talk about the parental responsibility in this relationship because, you know, I just think about that's always been a goal of mine personally is that my son who has ADHD, who actually is so in tune with his body, it's freaky. Like he is Mm -hmm. the kid who will leave a Sunday half finished and I'll be like, oh, I'll take the rest of that. But um, (laughs) he was a kid who was really underweight when he was younger. And I know that's the case for a lot of differently wired kids. These are often kids who, when they're little, they're maybe in the 15th or 20th percentile, or they might be on the other side of that. Um, You know, when we're doing all those wellness visits at the pediatrician and we're told where a child lies on that spectrum. And so I have always been very aware of, of the language I use and making sure that I don't contribute to an unhealthy relationship with food. But I can see how easy it is to do, right? With a little comment here or there, or just these messages we're sending to our kids with maybe not even realizing it. So what is the goal with parents? Like, how can we create that family culture of body positivity and where our kids, you know, will grow up having a good intuitive sense of their own eating, Mm -hmm. but also respecting and having that reverence that you talk about for their body? I think that what Leslie's talking about in terms of the division of responsibility, the work of Ellen Satter, it, it definitely is a big part of it. Like the way you structure your meals in the home and the way you do, you know, take up your responsibility as the parent, like uh, Leslie's saying in terms of the what and the when and the where, but that we really leave it to our children to finish the Sunday or to eat half of it. And, no judgment. Um, and so that's sort of the behavioral part around food. And we can certainly talk more about it. But I think it's also about creating an environment in the home. And, and again, we're realists. Our job is to serve as buffers. We, we can't, and it wouldn't be helpful to, to our children to shield them from the reality of what the world is like, you know. But we are able to, and we know through research that parents can have a very profound buffering effect. And one of those things is to make sure that in your home, there is no morality in food, that there, and this is hard because of diet culture that Leslie was talking about before, where you might, and again, we don't blame or shame anybody for using words like this, but you might have language like healthy food and junk food and, you know, or you have to eat this before you get your dessert, these kinds of very normal things that, you know, I find myself often saying, you know, I mean, I, 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 I try not to because of all that we're learning, but to really create an environment where there's equal availability and morality. So, you know, I know with Ellen Satter's work, there's a lot of recommendations to even serve the dessert with dinner, just to sort of put it on the table and, and really strive as parents to have an almost like a no big deal attitude towards all the food so that there's no, um, parade when your child eats a vegetable and no uh, freak out if your kid is eating too many lollipops. But again, remembering that the parent is also deciding, you know, what and where and, and when, you know, like you may not be putting 13, uh, you know, different desserts on the table at a time, you might be controlling how much you're offering. But we want to give our kids a chance to sort of take up their role and take up their lane, which allows them to do this self-regulating, like what you're describing in, in your son, and really making sure that the environment, if you can, you know, obviously, like everyone's coming at this with a different amount of privilege and resources, but in an ideal scenario, 
you'd be able to offer a wide variety of foods and just notice as a parent, do you make comments about foods that these most important, I think is like healthy foods or clean foods or junk foods or processed foods. And just be mindful of not making comments like this because we really want our kids to relate to food in a very balanced way without so much judgment. And same goes for kind of talking about bodies. And this can be hard too, but it's another really important way to create a safe feeding environment. It's to sort of just not do body talk and try to make meal times and the family meal is really important as much as possible, a time to gather and to be together and to have conversations that aren't really about food and aren't really about appearances, you know, just to sort of train our kids around the social experience of eating together. Leslie might have some contributions too. Yeah, I think one of the fundamentals that is really important for parents to get their heads around, which I think is really challenging for most people in our culture, is that your child has, a, just like you do, really a, what we call a genetic body blueprint that you know their body is going to grow as their genetics have determined it will grow. And that's pretty much predetermined. And that you know, our culture really makes a lot of money off of people thinking and selling that like if they eat a certain way or if they work out a certain way, they're going to skew towards like the appearance ideal. But the reality is, is that's, that's 95% of the time that just doesn't happen. And that our kids really, really need us to accept their body as it's growing just because it's growing at 13% doesn't mean it should be at the 50th percent. We want to see that it typically kids' bodies will grow around, you know, they're, they're a growth curve, not the 50th percent. It will grow around the gr- growth curve and that's totally normal. And that is what we want to support. We don't want to be afraid of our children's body being in a certain size. And that is really, really challenging for many, many parents because we just don't live in a culture that supports that fact. So we kind of have to start with that foundation um, because otherwise when we move into really trying to raise an intuitive eater and mover, it gets interfered with because of this other agenda. So many, many people have to do a little bit of work around that in order to come kind of really show up to the table and let their kids do their kids' job, their responsibility of choosing what, choosing kind of which, sorry, which things from the table they want to eat. And if they don't want to eat some of the things, that that's totally their responsibility to choose and how much. Okay. So I'm I'm just going to be honest. I'm like feeling super overwhelmed right now because I'm just thinking, you know, I've going into this conversation, I'm like, yeah, we're pretty good at this, you know, and and I'm like, hmm. And I imagine that some of my listeners are right there with me. You know, we, I've been super conscientious about my son's body image and, or, you know, just being careful about that. And really, um, you know, he asks me if he can get a piece of chocolate while we're watching The Good Place. And I'm like, it, that's your choice. That's for you to decide. Or if he asks how much, I'm like, y- you decide what you think is the right amount for you. And But when I think about the way that even just the conversations about, gosh, I have to get out for a run, or I really ate a lot this weekend, and I need to do X, Y, and Z. So it sounds like all that kind of talk, which I think we all do unless we're consciously not doing it, is yeah. going to impact them. Absolutely. I mean, more than we think. And I, I again, like... And we haven't really um, stressed this enough in this conversation, but we really, really want to make sure that our message comes through with tons of self-compassion and compassion for whatever we're doing because we're all in this culture in which that just seems totally normal to say something like that. But the truth is the research really shows that those type of comments not directed towards our kids at all but just our own comments about stuff is 
is happening all the time. And it truly is when we start to look at it and it's not helpful. So we do want to kind of be compassionate with ourselves and say, oh, I just had no idea. I didn't even know. I wasn't, I wasn't even aware. And okay, let me see if I can shift. I, I think I, what I'd also say too is, and, I, and I'm really glad, Deb, that you mentioned that because a lot of these ideas are counterintuitive and not a lot of the ideas, a lot of the, what the, like the data shows, right? A lot of the research, a lot of the recommendations are counterintuitive. And one of the things, and I, I, I'm really grateful that you brought up self-compassion, Leslie, because we can't actually have any of these conversations without that being our one and only goal to like offer ourselves self-compassion and also to remember that it's not too late. It's never too late to take stock in some of the ways we've been operating and notice and say, wow, you know, I didn't mean to do any, anything other than love my kid. And most people certainly listening to this podcast are just trying to love and help their kids and know that it's never too late to make adjustments. And what's never too late for is, especially if you have an older child, to talk to them. You know, with a two-year-old, you might not do that. You might just pivot, you know, but to be able to say, you know, I want to just mention that, like, I've made a lot of comments or that I've noticed that, you know, in our family, we do have a little bit of a culture here where we make comments about like, oh, I'm I'm so, I ate so much, I got to go for a run. And and I, I've been taking in new information and I, I just want to let you know that I'm really going to be striving to do that differently because I see the, you know, I, I'm learning and that's more so the point. Obviously we have, you know, if, especially if you get us going with talking, <laughs> we could overload anybody with information. That's part of what we're doing in our own way with getting all the information from the researchers and activists we talk to. But the most important part, and I would say that I hope the biggest takeaway is if, you, if you're hearing anything new, if you're learning anything new that makes you think twice or even feel overwhelmed, that you just know that that's okay and that any contemplation around any of this is just wonderful, both for yourself and for your kids, and it's never too late to make adjustments. I really want that to come through. Well, that's helpful. Thank you. Now I feel a little better. Uh, Good. <laughs> Good. Last thing um, we wanted was for you to invite us here and then for us to stress <laughs> you out. <laughs> this year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, 
six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. No, I mean, I guess, you know, I always talk about this too on the show is the importance of us modeling our own learning and being vulnerable with our kids and and talking out loud about our growth. So Mm -hmm. this is just yet another opportunity to do that. Yeah, it really is. It's one of the best things we can do for our children is to make our own changes in this area um, because we're, we're really strong models for them. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I would love to hear if you could just take a few minutes to tell us a little bit about what you do or what resources our listeners could tap into and where they can connect with you. Yeah. So on our website, which is fullbloomproject.com, we have all of our podcasts. We have produced 50 to date. Um, and we launch them every uh, every week, soon to be every other week. Um, and they're all like deep dives into kind of all of these topics that we've talked about. So if there's something in particular that you're like, wait, what? You know, you can go there and really get a lot more information. Um, we also have on our website what we've created, which is called the ABCs of Body Positive Parenting. And... Within that, it's like a digital book um, that has links to all of the resources and information um, on each topic. Um, So that is available. It's like an A to Z guide um, for purchase on our website. And then we have a body positive parenting primer, which is a webinar, um, a recorded webinar that parents can watch that really deep dives into what we call the fundamental five of body positive parenting. Am I missing anything, Zoe? I would just say we have an Instagram uh, presence at Full Bloom Project. And that's sort of, you know, for more like visual, visually curious people. Um, We do engage with our community there. And then on our website, um, just one of the tabs is, I think it's just body positive parenting. But we do offer these just these questions and the ABC guide that Leslie's referring to answers the questions and our episodes from season one of our podcast also attempts to answer the questions. But I think as a place to just even get started, especially if you listen and you were intrigued, but you were a little overwhelmed, sometimes just looking at the questions, right? Not rushing to the answers, but just looking at the questions. And there's these A to Z questions that extend, you know, questions about like, how can my ancestry promote body positivity in my child? Or why would I raise an intuitive eater? Or how do I really feel about fat? Like, they're just sort of thought provoking questions. And, and sometimes I do think that the questions are a better place to start. And then you can use the guide or the podcast and, and sort of go towards selectively trying to get some answers to the questions that feel most resonant to you. We, we also wanted to share a discount code for your listeners, um, if that's okay. Yeah, please. Okay. So it's just full bloom 20 and that will give any listeners 15% off of anything on our website. Um, the one last thing that we do, we have been doing a lot more of is I'm speaking at schools and PTAs and conferences. Um, So that's something that's also, you know, we can engage with if someone feels like they want us to come and speak to parent communities or faculty communities. 
Awesome. Yeah. So many great resources and listeners, I will include links to all of those things that Zoe and Leslie shared on the website, including the discount code and definitely check out their podcast. Your website, by the way, is just beautiful. I love your design and your little logo. It's just the sweetest thing ever. So I just had to say that. (laughs) Thank you. We will tell our designer. She'll be happy to hear it. So (laughs) lovely. Um, This has been really insightful and such an interesting conversation. Definitely gave me lots of things to think about. And I'm sure the same for many of our listeners. So just want to thank you so much for taking the time to come by and share with us today. You're so welcome. Thanks for hosting us and please be in touch. They can, anyone can email us as well at info at fullbloomproject.com if you have a question that came up. And actually, as a, as a closing, I'm just reminded, we are, for our third season, we're really trying to put forth real life questions into um, each episode. So if you were listening Um, and you have a question, you have an opportunity also to allow us to feature the question on a podcast because we're really interested in answering not just basic questions, but nuanced personal questions as well. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you again. And we will uh, look forward to continuing the conversation. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.